Do all roads lead to heaven? Is that a loaded question? Be a good person and you're fine? Happiness is heaven? Actually, the one I liked was pay your tithing. Pay your tithing and you'll be fine. Just pay your tithing. That's it. Last week, I was at the Glendale Adventist Hospital visiting a young woman who's a member of our church. Her name is Sarah. And after my visit to Sarah, I started to leave the hospital. Now, I always enter the hospital from what I think is the south side and uh, check in at the desk. They tell me where she is. I went, wandered through the hospital to another wing, went up to the second floor and uh, visited her. On the way out, I decided I don't need the elevator. I'm only going down one flight of stairs. And so I went, found some stairs, went down those stairs, walked out the landing, and I was in a parking lot. And I said, whoops, this is wrong because I can't be this close to where I parked. And so I went back up the stairs to go back into the second floor rooms where I came from, and it was locked. I couldn't get in. And so then I thought, well, now this is interesting. So I began to wander. Now, I'm used to wandering because I'm directionally challenged. And as you can see, eventually I got out of the hospital, found my car, and uh, I'm here. The reality is, though, by going to the north side of the hospital, I cannot get to my car on the south side of the hospital. It never works. The reality is that even though I'm lost and want to find my car, that doesn't necessarily help me find my car. I generally have to stop and get directions or begin to read the signs or retrace my steps or something. Now, I confess I'm directionally challenged. Um, Today we're going to come to a very tough subject or topic. Do all roads lead to heaven? Do all roads lead to God? And it's a sensitive topic. And to be honest, if my wife hadn't told me to preach on these God questions, I'd just avoid these topics. But here it is, Sunday morning, and this is the topic our small groups are studying and we're wrestling with. And so I want to come at this, even though my natural inclination would be maybe to duck and run on this one. Uh, how are you doing? Are you okay? I'm going to check in with you several times. Would you turn to your neighbor and just say, are you okay? Check in. Okay. Good. I want you to be relaxed. Let's go through this. Now, it's really important, and I know we have note-takers and we have non-note-takers, but it's important for you to find this sheet in your worship folder and at least make me feel better by looking at it. I spent a lot of time on this, and as did others. And the first question I want to come at, and today we're simply going to kind of come at some questions, is do all religions teach the same thing? Now, you have this graphic, this circle here, and if you want more information, you can go to adherence.com. If your eyes are super good, it's actually written in the lower right-hand corner. Uh, There's all sorts of information on religions around the world. But sociologists have identified and studied every religious system in the world with 10,000 people or more in it. And you can go to that list at adherence.com if you want more information. But they have, they say that if you take the seven largest religions in the world, you will cover 97% of the world's population. Seven of the religions, as sociologists group them, cover 97% of the religions of the world. Now, I want us to look together at several major groups, certainly not all groups, but several major ones that you have some familiarity with. And I want to go through this pretty quickly. I don't intend to put you to sleep, but uh, let's look at some 
basic beliefs of some of the more prevalent religions in our world. And we're going to begin with Buddhism. And if you want to fill in the blanks there, the followers number about 376 million. That's uh, a small percent. It's listed there on your chart of the world's religion. Uh, The next fill in the blank, well, it was founded by Siddhartha Gautama, and their view of God is that um, the four noble truths are the means to God. The view of God is not stressed in Uh, That's the first fill in the blank, I guess. The view of God is really not stressed in Buddhism. And the next one, the means to God, are the four noble truths. Now, Siddhartha was raised, actually, in a Hindu class, a high Hindu class family. So he was a part of the leisure class, which gave him the opportunity to meditate and reflect on what is the meaning of life. And he did that. When Siddhartha meditated, he became enlightened or as... The word Buddha means the enlightened one. The story is that at a certain point in his life, convinced that Hinduism did not hold the secrets to a satisfying life, Siddhartha went off and sat under a tree for 40 days and 40 nights and thought about what is the meaning of life. And he came out of that experience with this idea of being the enlightened one or the Buddha. Now, the, how do they get to God? How does a Buddha, what is the means to God for a Buddha? And the means to God are the four noble truths. And I'm going to give those to you very quickly. Again, you can go on adherence.com and get this information again. But for a Buddhist, the, there are four truths. The first is life is about suffering. The second one is craving is the root cause of all suffering. Craving is the cause of suffering. The cure for suffering is to eliminate, therefore, craving. And to eliminate craving, you follow the Eightfold Path. And you've probably heard of Buddhism talk about the Eightfold Path. I'm going to give that to you very quickly uh, just to get so you can help you understand what their uh, teaching is. Number one, right views. And the right views are, in other words, believe the Four Noble Truths. Right resolve. That's a commitment to basically renouncing the pleasures of the senses so that you can uh, crave less and less, right resolve. Number three, right speech, right behavior, right occupation, right effort, right, contem- right effort, right contemplation, and right meditation, thinking deeply. And by following this eightfold path, the hope is that you can achieve a oneness with the universe and that you can leave it without, you can live without uh, detachment or hindrance. This was Buddha's system. And again, God is really not discussed much in the system of belief of Buddhism. Now, let's move on to Hinduism. This one's going to take a little more time, but uh, Hinduism has about 9 million followers, or 14% of the world. Primarily, Hinduism is found in India. Their view of God, um, let's come to that in a minute. Their view of God is pantheism. I'll come back to that. Hinduism was founded between about 1800 and 1000 B.C., before Christ. Hinduism doesn't have a person that you can point to as a founder. It's the largest, most interconnected expression of animism. So Hinduism developed over about an 800-year period. It was evolving and developing. Hindus believe that there is one uniform force in the universe called the Brahman. You remember the Luke Skywalker movie where he's going to tap into this energy force? That's a very Hindu idea. That's the ultimate aim of every Hindu, is to meld into the inanimate force of the universe to be reabsorbed into this great cosmic unconsciousness. Don't go unconscious on me here, but 
That's something else. Hindus believe that this inanimate force, which is God, small g-o-d, is in everything and is everything. So their religion holds to a view of God that we call pantheism. Now, the word pan, P-A-N, is the Latin word for all. And so pantheism means uh, God is in everything. God is in this stage I'm standing on. God is in the microphone I'm speaking through. God is in these walls. God's in the lights. God's in all living creatures. God's in, God is in all plants. And so that's a, a pantheistic view. All of the universe force, matter, consciousness, unconscious energy, is being constantly recycled. And so, what's the next uh, statement? Their view of the afterlife, well, their means to God is, first of all, the transmigration of souls, or more commonly known as reincarnation. Now, in this life force, you begin to live well, and as you live well, you move up. As you, if you live badly, you're going to move back. So if you're not doing real well in this life, you may come back as a mosquito. And you kind of got to start up the chain again and work your way up. Now, it's estimated, and of course there's no hard number, but it's estimated that you'll need 600,000 lifetimes to achieve this state. And there, that final state or view of the afterlife is called nirvana. Nirvana. The various, uh, I'm scanning my notes. Oh, that's, that's why in India, for example, they venerate cows, rats, they won't kill animals because there might be ancestors there or people you knew or formerly knew, they're living spirits that are in those animals, and so you don't want to wreck their chance of growing so you don't kill them. So that's, that's a part of their view. Now, in, especially in California and in the United States and in Western societies, uh, there has been an adaptation of Hinduism in the New Age movement. And some have called the New Age movement cosmic optimism because here in the West, we don't ever want to think of going backwards. You know, the chart is always to the right and up. And so we've uh, sort of adapted a Hinduistic view, but it's, you're not going to slide back. You're just always going up, kind of always going forward, a very positive outlook. That's a little bit on Hinduism. But this Hinduism is that eventually you're going to be absorbed into this cosmic energy or force and just be in it. That's, that's the end result or nirvana. Now, I want to look at two others. You all right? Good, thanks. Look, looking it in good. Let me go on to a couple others. Are we competing? Um, I'm going to leave that question unanswered. Let me, I'm trying to share basically what the various beliefs believe and uh, show that and contrast there are some real differences. And so I wouldn't choose to call it competition, but more of a quest for the truth. Uh, but it may, may look some like competition, I'm not sure. Let me go to another category that sociologists list, and that's, you can see several slashes here, but basically it's called secularism or non-religious people or agnostics or atheists. Um, sociologists lump this group together, and this isn't my decision, this is something that's come out of the study of religions. And these are people, uh, many of them, who grew up in communist countries or people who just describe themselves, I'm not religious. Uh, there are about 1.1 billion non-religious, uh, non-religious Westerners, agnostics, atheists, and so forth, uh, both in our country and in Western countries. And that's the number, 1.1. An example of a person like this, you may remember in November of 2005, Michael Newdow said that he wanted to pass a law in the United States taking In God We Trust off the coins. And he's a person who s describes himself by saying, 
I just don't believe in God. I don't know what I believe, but I know that I don't believe in God, and therefore he wanted the in God we trust off of our coins. Uh, he would be an example of someone in that group. Now, let me come to Muslims, and then we're going to come to Christians. The most popular world religion outside of Christianity is Islam. About 21% of the world would profess to be a member of that faith. There are 1.3 billion people in Islam, and uh, it's a rapidly growing faith because of the high birth rate and because of their aggressive proselytization. They're seeking to win others to Islam. Let me say a word about that. The founder, of course, is Muhammad, and Muhammad grew up in Mecca. And he grew up in a pretty diverse society. There were lots of Jews in Mecca. There were lots of Christians. So he grew up knowing the Bible and knowing about heaven. He grew up, uh, the people that he grew up with were Arab tribesmen who had a lot of gods in their life. And as he began to uh, consider that, he had this revelation that there was only one God. So their view of God is monotheism, just as is Christianity. They believe in one God. And in Muhammad's world, the god of the moon was called Allah, and he believed that that was the supreme one god, Allah. And so Allah is the god of the, those who uh, believe in uh, that form of belief, in Muslim belief. The word Islam actually means submission. And Muhammad began to teach the Arab tribesmen that they need to become Muslims or the submitted ones, those who are submissive. And so that's a huge word in Islam is this word submission. It, that's what it means is submission. Now, how do they get to God? What is the means to God? Well, the means to God are the five pillars of Islam. And I'll give those to you very quickly. The five pillars of Islam are reciting the Shahada, praying five times a day. We've all heard of, of that one. Giving to the poor. Fasting during the month of Ramadan, which we're in the middle of that right now. I think it ends uh, October 12th, something like that. And then the fifth one is the pilgrimage to Mecca, their Hajj, and that once in your lifetime, yours to go to Mecca, the, the holy city. So by practicing these five actions, a, a person of Islam faith hopes that they make it to paradise. Now, paradise is similar to our heaven with a, with a major distinction. Now, they're never in Islam, you can't be quite sure you're going to make it there because Allah may decide you're not good enough. It's up to Allah. And therefore, there's this tremendous effort put forth without the confidence you're going to make it. That's not promised. It's not promised that Allah will receive you. Let me say a word about their view of paradise. Um, paradise for a Muslim male is very similar to the Christian's heaven with this exception. And I want to read from uh, their scripture, the Koran. Muhammad, remember, grew up in a very desert climate. So when he describes heaven, it's a place with lots of water, lots of food, lots of lush gardens. It's a, it's a beautiful place, and we have similar descriptions in the Bible. But in uh, the Koran, it says this. In heaven, or paradise, there are bashful, I'm quoting now, bashful virgins whom neither man nor jinni has ever touched before, virgins as fair as coral rubies. And then he goes on to say, in the next chapter, they shall recline on jeweled couches face to face, and there shall be the dark-eyed orus that chased, chased as hidden pearls. And here's the final line you need to catch, a reward for their deeds. Now, what's that about? Well, there was a cartoon in one of the newspapers that I saw uh, within the past couple of years, since 9-11, and it was a picture of a terrorist who had blown himself up in some horrible act, and killed lots of people and himself, and went to paradise. Only in the cartoon, there were a bunch of flames coming up, 
And the caption said, where are all the virgins? Now, that captures the belief of those who are in Islam because in the end in paradise, there's this great plethora of virgins, and uh, that's sort of the goal. Now, the one problem with that is, of course, that's the reward for men. It doesn't say anything about the women. And that's a very big difference than what we would call heaven and an Islam person would call paradise. Now, let, let's go on to Christianity, and then I've got some questions I want to come up. You're, you're doing great. Appreciate your listening. In Christianity, there are about two billion people, and these would be people that self-identify as Christian. The founder, of course, is Jesus Christ. The view of God is monotheism. And the means to God, or how do we get to God, is through atonement or substitutionary death of Christ. The Bible says, and we believe, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And so that's our road to heaven. The view of the afterlife, of course, is, is heaven. And uh, the Bible has actually quite a bit to say about heaven. In the second to the last chapter, the last couple chapters in the Bible are about to heaven. And in that second to the last chapter, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now, we've covered lots of grounds. And uh, how are you doing? Are you okay? Still with us? Need to stand up and take a break or greet each other again? All right. Now, I've got some questions I want to come at. I thought it's important to... Put out there what, what uh, religious faiths believe, because when we ask the question, do all roads lead to heaven, um, it's really not the best question. Because if you're a Buddhist, your goal is not to go to heaven. That's not even what you want. And if, if you're into Hindu, Hinduism never claims to leave anybody to heaven or even God. It's kind of this absorption into the universe, this cosmic energy. And so, in one sense, as you think more particularly about different faiths, uh, you know, you really don't get on a road to New York if you want to go to Hawaii. That's not the right road. And so I think it's helpful to realize that some religions don't even claim to lead, lead to heaven. They claim to lead somewhere else. Now, I want to come more specifically to Christianity and some questions that we consider as Christians. And one of the questions that I often hear and we often think, isn't it enough to be sincere? If I'm sincerely seeking God, isn't that enough? And so let me come at this sincerity question for a moment. Actually, I think it's one of the easier questions. The other ones are more difficult, at least for me. Sincerity is good, uh, but sincerity is rarely enough. Ted, I would sincerely like to be in the praise team. I sincerely would. I just love music, and I'm going to... I would like to play. Alan, uh, you can preach, and I'll play. Did I hit any right notes? I hit all of them. I hit all of them? Oh, thank you. I'll, I'll show up for practice. Now, see, I can be sincere in my desire, and I, I sincerely wish I were good at music. But I need more than sincerity, don't I? And you need a lesson, Joyce says. <laughs> I need a lot of lessons, and even that might not help because I don't think I'm gifted in that area. My only point is that sincerity is not a, enough. When you go to a doctor, you want a sincere doctor who knows the truth and has a high level of skill. You want it all. So sincerity is good, but it's never enough because we all know folks who are sincerely wrong. So when we think about faiths in the world, when we think about truth, sincerity is good, but it's not enough. Because truth has to be mixed in there somewhere. And the truth is, although I sincerely would like to play the piano, I haven't got the skills to do it. And so since, uh, is sincerity enough? Rarely in life is sincerity enough. Now let me come um, at another question. 
Is Jesus the only way? Ah. There are about six billion people in the world, and according to the data we looked at, and it's more or less accurate, there are about two billion Christians. That leaves about four billion people who are outside the Christian faith. That's a lot of people. I don't know about you, but that's of concern to me. What about them? Is Jesus the only way? Now, again, this question could entangle us for a long, long time. And I recognize I'm just sort of pointing us down some roads. We're not going to go all the way down them. They're long roads. But we're going to start on some of them. Um, To say that many people do not believe, therefore Jesus cannot be the only way, is actually not, you don't believe that. Because popular opinion is not the determiner of truth, is it? The majority is not always right. The minority is not always wrong. And truth is truth whether anybody believes it or whether everybody believes it. And I think you and I understand that. Truth is truth, and it can be believed in or not believed in. Let me give you one example from medical history. Uh, About 150 years ago, Dr. Ignaz Samelweis, a Hungarian physician, began to study the question, and this is before germs were understood. He began to study, does it make any difference if a doctor washes his hands? And as he studied that, he actually set up some research groups, and he realized that those who washed their hands had a much lower mortality rate of their patients than those who didn't. I mean, we all know this stuff, but he didn't. And so on one occasion... Dr. Samelweis presented his information to other doctors, and he got an absolutely cold reception. And one of the things they said was, why, you know, we're not going to spend all day washing our hands. It would take so much time if we had to wash our hands between every patient. Now, in that time period, doctors would spend a lot of time with cadavers, corpses, taking them apart, studying them, doing their research on a dead body, and they would go directly from there to deliver babies of pregnant women. Lots of women died. Dr. Sveinlweis realized that the midwives who he had washing their hands had very few mortality rates compared with the doctors who had this high mortality rate. He spent 15 years of his life. He wrote a book. He lectured. He said, you need to wash your hands. Nobody would listen. He finally had a nervous breakdown, was put in an insane asylum where he died. Now, I cite that simply to say that we're pretty resistant to truth sometimes. And again, the question of is Jesus the only way or not, uh, if Jesus is who he says he is, he may be the way to God. If he's not who he says he is, then he's not the way to God. But the truth of the matter is it doesn't depend on whether lots of people believe it or nobody believes it. The question is, what is the truth? And I hope in this conversation this morning that that I'm stirring up your mind and hoping to push you down the road a little bit to that question, what is the truth about this matter? Let's not just be lazy in our thinking. Now, here's another question. What what about those who have never heard? Ah, this is a tough one for me as well. What about people who have never heard about God? The psalmist says, God is righteous and just in all he does, Psalm 116. I want you to listen to what uh, R.C. Sproul says. He's an uh, author, a theologian, a Reformed theologian, author of a book, Reason to Believe, and he says this. If God were to punish a person for not responding to a message that he had no possibility of hearing, 
That would be gross injustice. It would be radically inconsistent with God's own revealed justice. We can be assured that no one is ever punished for rejecting Christ if they've never heard of Christ. Before we sigh too deep a breath of relief, however, let us keep in mind that the native is still not off the hook, nor is anyone. It is precisely at this point that the New Testament speaks of the universal guilt of man or humanity. God's wrath is not revealed against innocence or ignorance, but against ungodliness and wickedness. The Bible teaches that all people have a responsibility to acknowledge God and to admit they need God. And then he quotes Romans 1, 18 through 20. I'll just read the last few lines. The Bible says, for since the, this is Romans 1, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that all people are without excuse. This idea that even nature, in some ways, reveals God's eternal qualities. Uh, this morning, uh, we've, we're coming at a tough subject, and I recognize that. It prompts probably more questions than answers. But I hope as we've looked at this, I've pointed you in a direction of thinking that you can continue to think. I hope you'll be in a small group Bible study where we're wrestling with these questions and we have more time to discuss them. Uh, I hope you'll come to class 101. Joyce and I will be teaching our membership class next Sunday. And if you'd like to know more about salvation or baptism or simply what the church believes, we're going to be teaching that class next Sunday afternoon. I encourage you to sign up for that. We'd love to have you join us for that. Now, I want to ask one last question. And for me, I think this is the most important question of the day. How will you get to heaven? How will you get to heaven? And I've listed several scriptures here, and I've printed them out so that you can take them with you and reflect on them yourself. But the first one comes from the Proverbs, and the Bible says there is a way that seems right, but in the end it leads to death. Now, when I walked out of that hospital, and I said, I'm going to go downstairs. I did go downstairs, but it didn't lead me to my car. I simply chose the wrong door, and I went the wrong direction. It did not lead me to where I'm going. And all of us, I think, if we're honest, have admitted, or should admit, look, I've been on some roads that didn't lead me in the right direction. They were destructive roads. And that's a part of our human condition. It's pretty easy to choose those roads of destruction. And the Bible is simply saying what we all know. There is a right way, there is a wrong way. In Isaiah 53, the prophet said, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, he's talking about someone taking our guilt, our sin, our shame on himself and suffering for that. And, of course, we believe that person to be Jesus. Thirdly, in the best sermon and the most famous sermon Jesus ever preached, maybe the best sermon of all time, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus is preaching, and he says these words, and they're hard words to hear, but nevertheless they're truth. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter thereon. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. And then later in the Gospel of John, before Jesus went back to heaven, he said to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And again, he was giving that great invitation that said, I, I really am God's Son. I am who I claim to be. I am Lord. Now, I think what falls upon us 
as human beings with a free choice, is we have to decide, is Jesus Lord? Is he a lunatic? Is he a liar? Who is Jesus? What's the truth about Jesus? And I think that's the question for you today. What's the truth about Jesus? Is he a nutcase or not? And if he's not, if he is Lord, then why haven't I responded to him in faith and committed my life to following his teachings? Which leads me to the last verse here, the very famous one, uh, John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes would not perish but have everlasting life. So this morning, uh, I'd like to conclude simply by asking you, uh, if you know the Lord, will you get to heaven? Do you have that confidence? In fact, if you were to die, God forbid, if you were to die today, do you know where you're going? And with all the humility I have, I can say, I do. I'm not afraid of death. I don't want to die. I hope to live to be very old. But I'm not afraid of dying because of the assurance I believe I have from God through Jesus Christ. And I want to ask you, do you have that assurance? Because I think it's a gift, a free gift of God, that Jesus is who he says he is. And so I think that's the question for us that we can talk about other faiths and other religions and what's happening to other people, and that's a good conversation. We need to have it. But in the end, you and I have to have the conversation between God and ourselves. Where am I going to go when I die? And I'd like to ask you that now. Do you have the confidence that you're going to go be with the Lord? That's what I want for you. That's what God wants. And I found that confidence through Jesus. Now, you may say, Steve, how, how do I have that confidence? It's by opening your life and saying yes to Jesus. And you might, just where you are, if this is a moment when you want to take that step of faith to say, I will trust Jesus, then this is a prayer which I think you you could pray. And you could pray it right there, and I hope you'll let me know if you have prayed that. The prayer is something like this. It's about God being the way. You might just pray to yourself, yes, God, I believe in Jesus. I trust my life to you. I'm sorry for going my way. Now I'm going to go Jesus' way. Thank you, God, for Jesus. Thank you for coming into my life. Thank you for giving me heaven. Would you pray that prayer? Would you consider the things we've talked about?